92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features Descent Magazine founding editor Irving Howe on the Jews of New York, the early period, Pioneers and Adventurers. It was recorded on February 10th, 1976, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you. I have to begin with an apology, and that is that I have the remains of a bad case of laryngitis. The consequence, the terrible mistake of having gone to California, which I strongly recommend that nobody do. Uh, Now, as you know, I've been working on this book for some years and it's just come out. <clears throat> and I can't, of course, come up with something uh, totally new. Can you hear me in the back? Okay, all right. What I want to do is to present some of the material in my book on these three talks, some of the less obvious and less popular uh, unexcerpted material. And today, I want to talk about the first period of the East European Jewish immigration to America. The first period would be between 1881, when Tsar Alexander II of Russia was assassinated, and there came to an end uh, a brief phase of Russian liberalism. All phases of Russian liberalism, as you know, being brief. And at that point, the Jews of Eastern Europe made what was really a conscious decision to begin a large-scale debate among themselves as to what their future destiny would be. And there were those who said we must stay, and there were those who said we must go. Large numbers of people in the 1880s and 1890s made their decision quite apart from this debate. They simply went. Who went? The flotsam and jetsam of the shtetl, the small town, the adventurers, the adventurous, the surplus population, the people who had no particular skills or occupations, those who wanted to escape the czar's armies. When they came here, the word had gotten around There was a kind of informal communication system among the immigrants. The word had gotten around that it was desirable when you reached Castle Island or Castle Garden or Ellis Island that you have a trade. And so they called themselves tailors. From my own work in whatever materials we have about this period, most of these tailors couldn't sew a button. Uh, But in fact, they did become tailors here in America. The first Jewish proletarianization occurred here in America, a few years ahead of that in Eastern Europe. And as I worked on my book, I came to the conclusion that the immigration of the East European Jews, which between 1881 and the First World War came to the enormous total of two million that this immigration naturally divided itself into two periods. The first period was between 1881 and about 1903, 1904, thereabouts. 
And then came the second period. <clears throat> what distinguished the second period from the first was that in the second period, the Jews brought their intellectuals with them. And this was a major distinguishing characteristic which set the Jewish migration apart from almost all other ethnic groups. But in the 80s and 90s, the Jews who came to America really left a good portion of their culture behind them. They were like the very first pioneers going westward. Now you all probably, if you were of Jewish descent, have uh, stories in your minds and your memories of the sufferings of the older generations. But very probably, those sufferings have to do with the generation which came after 1905. And while I would not wish to minimize the extent of those sufferings, everything that I have learned has persuaded me that the sufferings of post-1905 were as nothing compared to those of the 80s and 90s. These were really, in some ways, the most victimized of all the immigrants. And their story has been virtually lost in all the accounts and all the literature, they virtually disappear. And as a consequence, I decided in my book to try to gather as much material as I could about them. They were really the forgotten men of the East European Jewish migration to America. And I'll present some of this material with a running commentary. Not all of it, of course. <coughs> in the early 1880s, the Jewish quarter on the east side was still small. Much of it was still under the control of the Irish and the Germans. A few Jewish families had moved into East Broadway at Clinton and Montgomery Streets. There was nearby still a purely American section. The number of Jewish families declined as one moved from East Broadway toward Henry and Madison and Monroe Streets. When you reached Cherry Street a little further south, there were no Jews at all. Going in the other direction, toward north, toward Delancey Street, there was still a Jewish quarter. The main street was East Broadway, which some of the more intellectualized of the immigrants called Ulitsa, the Russian word for boulevard, because here the Jewish intelligentsia would stroll up and down, determined to speak Russian, which was, as they knew, a cultivated language rather than Yiddish, which they associated with the hoi polloi. <clears throat> Within a few years, the Lower East Side became the most densely populated area in the city. By 1890, it had 525 inhabitants per acre. By 1900, more than 700. The density of the 10th Ward, which was a major political division within the East Side, was greater than that of the worst sections of Bombay. And since there were many small shops crowded into this area, the crowding by day was scarcely less extreme than by night. One of the most spectacularly bad places here was the so-called pig market on Hester near Ludlow, where you could buy everything indeed except pig. You could get peaches for a penny a quart, damaged eggs, I'm not quite sure what damaged eggs are. For 35 cents, you could buy a pair of eyeglasses, an old coat cost 50 cents. And here the greenhorns would bunch in in the mornings to wait for employers looking for cheap, transient labor. The records that we have of those who have remembered 
the immigrant quarter from this time is that of a fierce congestion, a place in which the bodily presence of other people, their motions and smells and noises seemed always to be assaulting you. Of space for privacy and solitude, there was none. <clears throat> One of the very first and the most important of the Jewish immigrants was Abraham Kahn, who would later become the editor of the Yiddish socialist paper, The Forward. He came in 1881. A year later, in 1882, he is writing a letter to a Russian newspaper, and he writes, Curse you, emigration. Accursed are the conditions that have brought you forth. How many lives have you broken? How many brave and mighty have you rubbed out like dust? These bitter sentiments were by no means unusual in the 80s or 90s or confined to people like Khan. The immigrants came with inflamed hopes, with naive expectations. They were not among the most educated of the Jews. The more educated ones still remain in the old country. And as a consequence, coming to America at a time when the cities were in the process of rapid growth, when the costs of industrialization were very high, when urbanization was proceeding unchecked, many of them became demoralized and permanently undone. And it wasn't only that their physical condition was bad, that after all they had long been accustomed to. Much worse was spiritual confusion. No controlling norms or institutions, neither rabbinical nor communal, could now be accepted as once they had been. No myths of tradition or even slogans of revolt. Those who wanted to remain faithful to traditional Judaism, and many did, had to rely mainly on their memories. The pressures of the city, the shop, the slum, all <coughs> made it terribly hard to remain with the traditional religious ethic. The styles of traditional Judaism had been premised upon a time scheme far more leisurely, a life far less harried than urban America demanded. As for the new ethic of a materialist individualism, what could this mean to a garment worker who spent 60 hours a week in a sweatshop, physically present in America, yet barely touched by its language, its traditions, or its privileges? Those immigrants who stood fast by religion found whatever solace it could offer those who turned to one or another version of secularism found the consolations of new theory. But the masses of immigrants, who rarely thought to call religion into question, yet found it harder and harder to regard religion as it had been in the old country, namely as a system which illuminated and controlled the whole of existence, what was left to them? Well, fragments of a culture, <coughs> a parochialism bred by centuries of isolation, a heritage of fear, withdrawal, insularity. Most of the early immigrants were people who were stranded, stranded socially, morally, psychological. Now that all this was happening at the very time that Jewish life in Eastern Europe had begun to experience a very considerable cultural renewal doesn't change things very much. 
since few of the immigrants in America really had a close knowledge of the East European renewal. It was too far away to brighten or sustain their lives. All that they could bring to their experience in America, and it was a great deal, was that shared tenacity, that stubbornness for survival with which Jews had always clung to life. The Jews who came during these years <clears throat> often were not able to carry deep within themselves the heritage of the past. Many were so shaken by the ordeal of flight that for a time they seemed all but culturally dispossessed. It would take really something like a quarter of a century at least before they could regain or reunite with the culture they had left behind. One Yiddish writer, Burach Rifkin, has observed, quote, the first immigrant generation were Jews without Jewish memories or traditions. They shook them off in the boat when they came across the seas. They emptied out their memories. If you would speak with disrespect, they were no more than a mob. If you would speak with respect, they were a vigorous people. Lost in the cities of America, they succumbed to waves of nostalgia for the old world. One early immigrant writes in a letter, I am overcome with longing, not only for my Jewish world, which I have lost, but also for Russia. Both the handful of intellectuals who came at this time and the often unlettered, barely literate masses were now inclined to recreate the life of the old country in their imagination, so that with time, distance, and suffering, the past from which they had fled, the past which had been so oppressive, came to take on an attractive glow, to seem a way of rightness and order. And yet, <coughs> for all their homesickness and all their desperation, and even though there were serious discussions in the 80s and 90s as to whether the Jewish community could even survive in America. Nevertheless, they chose overwhelmingly to remain here. We don't really have any very reliable statistics about re-emigration, that is people going back to the old country during the late 19th century, but we know that with the exception of one group, the Irish, that of the Jews was quite the lowest of all emigrant ethnic groups. For the vast majority, there really seemed no choice. Neither suffering nor nostalgia could induce them to go back to the country of the Tsars. One Yiddish writer, Leon Kobrin, has written a memoir. He recalls the east side of the 1890s. I quote, it was a gray stone world of tall tenements where even on the loveliest spring day there was not a blade of grass. The streets are enveloped in an undefinable atmosphere which reflects the unique light or shadow of its Jewish inhabitants. The air itself seems to have absorbed the unique Jewish sorrow and pain, an emanation of its thousands of years of exile. The sun, gray and depressed, the men and women clustered around the pushcarts, the gray walls of the tenement, all looks sad. 
<coughs> Here is another writer, David Ignatov, a, a leading Yiddish novelist, speaking about the same period. The new and alien people who came across the sea to this unimaginable city felt themselves caught up in a terrible storm that would soon tear them limb from limb. Buses and trolleys rushed through the streets with devilish force. Waves of people pounded the streets, their faces like foam. The immigrants came to feel a sense of fright under the weight of these massed streets. It was all wild, all inconceivable. All wild, all inconceivable. The way people walked, the rhythms of the streets, the division of the day into strict units of time, the disposal of waste, the relation among members of the family, the exchange of goods and money. One early immigrant, I. Benequit, remembered that the first time his mother went shopping for food in New York at a grocery store in Essex Street, quote, she brought back 20 pounds of black bread and several white hollers, thinking that as in Europe, you had to lay in a supply for the whole week. As a result, 15 pounds of the bread got moldy and had to be discarded. A similar but larger confusion occurred when the Baron de Hirsch Fund, which was a Jewish charitable organization, made an informal census of the East Side in 1890. The Jewish neighborhood was excited. Paupers began to build castles in the air. It was rumored that the Baron had decided that he was going to give $100 to each person. Another source said $500. One of the special problems that assailed the East Side at this point was a problem that Jews in America have not known since then with any intensity. It was the problem of conversion. The Jews were a new people, still relatively small in America. Among the Protestants in America, there was still a strong feeling that the Hebrews somehow, if only they could be gotten onto the right path and converted, would form ideal material for the Protestant church. The uh, zealousness of the Protestants at this time, the missionary spirit, which had led so many of them to, south, to the South Seas, was also very strong inside the country. And here you have these poor, strange Jews with their odd clothing. It was a natural field day for zealous con uh, converters some of whom were little more than racketeers, and some of whom were serious people. For the Jews on the East Side, at this point, the appearance of missionaries was a source of tremendous anger. Somehow they couldn't bear the whole idea that coming to America, the Naya Medina, the free land, that they would be subjected to the same kind of thing. And there occurred in the 80s and 90s a great many physical conflicts. Uh, Jewish gangs would rush against the missionaries, knock down their speaking stands, sometimes beat them up rather badly. Um, and this was a, a kind of irritation. It's understandable. Their life was terribly difficult and precarious, and they felt that the least that the outside world could do was to leave them alone. But that, of course, has been an expectation and desire of the Jews 
which for at least 2,000 years has yet to come true. During these early years, the nerves of the immigrant community were constantly at the breaking point. What seem, might seem the most trivial problems signaled a need for major adjustment. In many immigrant memoirs that we have of this time, a common theme is that family life suffers disruption because wives, daughters, and husbands go to work at different times and cannot eat together. The tempo of life in America, its intensity and hurry, for example, struck Morris Raphael Cohen, who would later become a major philosopher, as one of the major forces shattering traditional Jewish decorums. Cohen remembered, I quote, at six o'clock in the morning, the alarm would wake us all. His mother would prepare breakfast, his father say the morning prayers, and then both father and older brother would leave so as to be in the shop by seven. Alarm clocks may have been simple, even useful objects, but for the immigrants, they signified an entire new world outlook. Once, continued Cohen, quote, I had occasion to visit my father's shop. And I was impressed with a tremendous drive which infiltrated and animated the entire establishment. Nothing like the leisurely air in Minsk where my uncle Abraham had worked and where the men would sing occasionally. Sometimes my father and another presser would start a competitive drive to see who could press the largest number of jackets during the day. For the immigrants who remained orthodox in religious belief, these early years were impossibly hard. Their expectations of status collapsed in mockery. Their sense of self faltered into shame. One Hebraist, I. Lesitsky, has left a recollection. I had only one friend in my loneliness, one whom I met every day in the synagogue and to whom I poured out my heart, the Talmud. I was alone in the synagogue, sitting at the table, swaying over the open Talmud, chanting in the old country tone. Loud sounds burst in from the street, the sounds of the new life into which I had been cast. The cries reproach, reproached me mockingly. What are you doing among us, you unworldly idler? End quote. Like many others at this time, Lysitsky wandered from job to job at ease with none. In a, in a cigar factory, quote, where workers with gaunt, jaundiced faces and eyes the color of cigar ash bent over the tables, he listened to their vulgar talk and, quote, his heart turned over. That's what I, too, would be like. At one point, he met a Hebrew poet, a rather distinguished poet, Dolitsky, who had also stumbled into America and to whom he, Lysitsky, showed a poem he'd written in Hebrew. I quote from his memoir, stop it cried Dolitsky. The devil with poetry. Don't be a poet taster. You know what happens to Hebrew poets in this country. First stage Hebrew poet, second stage Hebrew teacher, or rather cattle herder with the children unwilling cattle. Third stage, you write trashy novels for servant girls. Do anything, be anything. Pedal candles, sell windbags and bubbles, be a tailor, a shoemaker, a cobbler, anything but a Hebrew poet. <clears throat> Years later, these same sentiments, almost the same language, would be echoed in a wonderful Yiddish poem by Moshe Leib Halpern. 
in which he sardonically instructs a little boy to be anything he wishes. Quote, be a loan shark, be a bagel lifter, even a grifter, but that if, God forbid, his son chooses to become a Yiddish poet, he, Moshe Leib, will cut him off forever. Few of the rabbis and learned men who came to America during the 80s and 90s were ever able to make a bearable life for themselves. Helpless and repelled, they took a kind of revenge in writing little-known parodies, mocking America, the treif of the Medina, the unkosher country, where Judaism, they said, would find its ultimate burial in the pits of freedom. <coughs> One of these parodies, mimicking the Talmudic style, begins, the new world stands on three things, money, and money, and again money. Imitating the Psalms, one paradise writes, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of scholars, nor standeth in the way of the enlightened, nor sitteth in the seat of the learned. But his delight is money, and in the accumulation of money does he meditate day and night. For money answereth all things, but the poor man's wisdom is despised. Another paradist writes, Akabia, the son of Charlie, said, Consider three things, and you will be able to exist in America. Forget who you are, wear a mask before those who know you, and do anything you can. Here is one that assumes the tone of Pilpul. Rabbi Safra said, a peddler has four characteristics. He is like a sponge, a funnel, a strainer, and a sieve. Like a sponge, he absorbs all kinds of merchandise. Like a funnel, he throws everything at his customers. Like a strainer, he lets the merchandise pass through his hands and retains only the debts. And like a sieve, his pockets are never benefited by what he retains. <coughs> One reason for this demoralization of the immigrants was noted by David Blaustein, who was perhaps the first sensitive social worker on the East Side. The immigrants' struggle for existence during these early years, he wrote, becomes to them more severe than it was in their native lands. In Europe, they were repressed collectively, while in America, economic pressure weighed most heavily on the individual. Jews trapped in a shtetl or a Polish city could feel they were martyrs for a sacred cause. But in America, quote, they could find no political explanation of their suffering and were therefore inclined in the tradition of individualism to blame themselves. Whether or not Blaustein knew it, he was providing an east side variation on a theme by de Tocqueville. The immigrants who came after 1905 would call those of the 80s and 90s verlorene Menschen, lost souls. And many were. How many? It's not really possible to say. Thousands must have succumbed quietly to the wretchedness of their days, quietly and without fuss over an iron or a sewing machine. What did they gain out of life? A few moments of pleasure now and then at the Yiddish theater, 
an occasional bitter strike, and the strikes were terrible, terrifying, usually doomed to, to defeat, yet signifying a will to dignity. Whatever visions of the good life might come from the socialist oratory of a Kahn or a Morris Hilquit, and above all, the persuasion that no matter what else, they had escaped from the czars, and that here they might yet see their sons and daughters move on to something better. But they themselves, they were lost, victims of the immigrant world's pinched reenactment of what Marx has called primitive accumulation. They felt they were repeating a familiar Jewish fate. They could also hardly have known that they were victims of a recurrent American condition. In this Republican country, said Nathaniel Hawthorne a few decades earlier, amid the fluctuating waves of social life, somebody is always at the drowning point. A good many of the early Jewish immigrants went under. Let me say something now about making a living, such as it was. <coughs> What do you do here for a livelihood? Asked the learned man when he came. You do what everyone else does, came the answer. You become a peddler. With a pack on his back and a garland of tinware hanging from my shoulder, I began crawling up and down the stairs. Now, in the soft glow of retrospect, in that rather sickly nostalgia and sentimentalization, which has afflicted a good deal of Jewish turning back to these moments, there's been a tendency to endow peddling with a certain glamour. But believe me, anyone who's ever been poor knows that there's nothing glamorous about poverty. In the cities of the North, during the years of the industrial expansion, peddling was a back-breaking and soul-destroying work. It had only one virtue, it kept you out of the shops. A popular Yiddish writer of the, early, of the late 19th century, Oyser Blaustein, wrote in one of his sketches as follows, quote, those who cannot work in the garment industry take to peddling. You need no more than to know the names of a few items in English and to have been blessed with a special gift, shamelessness so that you don't become depressed when you are toned, turned away or taunted by strangers. By now, America, he continues, is sated with peddlers. Before the big emigration, peddling wasn't a bad way to make a living. Now, it's too late. With time, peddling would become a bit more sophisticated. But in those early decades, it was simply a matter of going from house to house up and down the stairs, knocking on doors, and hoping to cajole a housewife. Usually it would be a housewife from another immigrant community who was too ashamed or shy to go to buy in the stores. Usually it would be an Italian or a German or an Irish housewife to whom the Jewish peddler would sell on credit. <clears throat> but not only was house-to-house -house peddling exhausting, it often had severe humiliations. Irish boys seemed to take special delight in taunting Jewish peddlers. But what drew some immigrants to peddling was the possibility that through intense self-exploitation, they might save up a little money 
start some sort of petty business and thereby avoid the unhappy fate of becoming a garment worker. For if you became a garment worker, the great probability was that you would remain one. Whereas if you were a peddler, through tremendous self-exploitation, you could perhaps rise on the social scale. The majority of Jewish immigrants, however, could not hope to escape the traumas of proletarianization. For the 90s, we have no statistical sources of any significance, but we do have some facts. The garment industry at this point formed an ideal setting for super-exploitation. Seasonal in setting, capricious in product, requiring labor both disciplined and semi-skilled, encouraging the sudden rise of new manufacturers and contractors with only a petty capital investment, peculiarly open to social evils such as homework, child labor, the contract system, and various kinds of cutthroat competition. It was the ideal place for immigrants to sacrifice themselves. Jacob Rees, the reformer and writer, writes in 1890, take the Second Avenue elevated and ride up half a mile through the sweaters district. Every open window of the big tenements gives you a glimpse of one of these shops. Men and women bending over their machines at the window half naked. Morning, noon, or night, no difference. Nor was it unusual, reported a New York State factory inspector in 1893, quote, when the weather permits to see the balconies of the fire escapes occupied by two to four busy workmen. The halls and roofs are also utilized for working purposes very frequently. <clears throat> Max Pine, who would later become a leader in the Jewish garment unions, recalls how in the late 80s he came over to America. Quote, I was approached by a contractor. He looked me up and down. A little satisfied smile appeared on the heavy lip under his thick yellow mustache. I said, a healthy specimen, red cheeks, clearly a good eater. You will do, you'll do all right in America. So we arranged our bargain. I was to pay him $25 and work unpaid for three weeks. And after I'd finished my apprenticeship, I would be on my own. In this atmosphere, remarked Lillian Wald, who was the great nurse of the East Side, a wonderful woman. She started the Henry Street Settlement, quote, tuberculosis seems the disease most to be dreaded. We call it the Taylor's disease. And one factory inspector, you unusually reflective man, found himself wondering in 1896 about the relation of family life to work, about women staying home to women going into the shops, I quote. On the one hand, we have the three-year-old child helping its mother to fix trimmings on dresses in the home, never out of sight, always where the mother could attend to its wants. On the other hand, we see the mother compelled to desert her three little ones of tender years, going out to the shop to work because the law prohibits her bringing the work into her home. As a result, these unfortunate little ones 
are left alone in a tenement, shut up in a fireless room with no one to take care of them. <coughs> An overwhelming number of immigrant Jews nevertheless flock to the needle trades. Why? Because those who had already become workers in Eastern Europe brought with them a slight experience as tailors. Because the garment shops were located close to the east side streets, an immigrant off the boat needed no English in order to reach them. Because some garment bosses, mostly German Jews, were willing to let religious Jews keep the Sabbath and work on Sunday. Because the industry had been expanding since the Civil War through the use of machinery and the manufacture of ready-made clothing so that many new hands were needed. Because it took only a little time to learn how to run a sewing machine. And because many employers were themselves Jews and therefore it seemed a little more homely and comfortable to go there. I turned to something else. We have become accustomed, of course, in our city to having many of the symptoms of dislocation and pathology blamed upon the victims of dislocation and pathology. And it's extremely sobering and very useful for Jews and non-Jews to learn that there was a time when just as today the blacks are blamed for crime and the Puerto Ricans for pathology and various other things, there was a time when it was commonly felt in the city that the major source of crime and social pathology was the Jews. <clears throat> that such symptoms should have appeared in the Jewish quarter was of course unavoidable. There was crime, wife desertion, delinquency, gangsterism, prostitution in these years, probably more than the records show. The memoirists are very, very cautious about this. If you go by Yiddish memoirs, you won't find much information. There's a kind of self-censorship. Uh, you don't tell the Gentiles, you see. Any realistic inhabitant of the East Side could nevertheless have told you, say in 1890, where prostitution flourished. It was mainly along Allen Street, with its dark and smelly houses, but also you could find some on Houston, Rivington, and Stanton. The very possibility that some of their own daughters might be mixed up with prostitution horrified the immigrant Jews. It ran wholly against the values they had brought across. Yet it was also true <clears throat> that prostitution had already shown itself in the Jewish neighborhoods of East European cities. The subject would soon appear in Yiddish literature, notably in Shalomash's popular play, God of Vengeance, in which the central character is a pro procurer trying to keep his daughter off the path of shame. And for decades, there would be a whisper running through the Yiddish-speaking world about Jewish white slavers who kidnapped girls from Eastern Europe and took them to brothels in Argentina. Why especially Argentina in these stories, I don't know. But in any case, that was the case. The most frequent crimes in the Jewish neighborhoods were crimes not of violence, but of fraud. A study in the, by 1898 police and municipal court records shows that Jews, quote, are prominent in their commission of forgery, violation of corporation ordinances, disorderly persons, 
and the lighter grade of assault, but were notably little addicted to intoxication, not much drinking, and furnished a small proportion of vagrants. How poor the whole immigrant world still was is suggested by the fact that most police summonses issued in the courts were for amounts lower than $10. <coughs> Among the immigrants, the very idea of physical violence seemed a little unreal, perhaps not to be taken very seriously. When the forward began publishing in 1897, it gave special attention. It was a mixture of socialism and sensationalism, special attention to a murder on the east side precisely because it seems so unusual an event. Quote from a headline, Shapiro murders Lieberman. If you can believe that, you can believe anything. Or because his fiance left him. Claim self-defense. Terrible uproar in Jewish quarter. And then, in the way they like to write, love, the article began, love, a deeply rooted, fiery love, ended last night with an awful murder in the Jewish quarter closer by far to the common Jewish feeling about violence was a forward story a few weeks earlier. Quote, wants to be a hero, hasn't got much luck. Sam wants to shoot his uncle and stepdaughter, but only manages to wound his knee. <laughs> far more frequent during these years were forward accounts of gross deceptions and pitiable swindles. Quote, Adler's family affairs. A 75-year-old man marries a 25-year-old girl, steals her $67, and disappears. Or, quote, <clears throat> who is the murderer? An awful tragedy with a young child. Child falls in boiling water. Mother calls a babka, a woman healer, instead of a doctor. She cuts the child's skin with a pair of scissors. After this, child dies. Babka not yet found, or, quote, wanted to force his bride to shame, and so on and on it goes. Crime befouled the life of the East Side during the 80s and 90s. Later, as the immigrants learned the devices of native enterprise, the neighborhood would export some notable and distinguished graduates to the underworld of New York, Arnold Rothstein, Legs, Diamonds, many others. The East Side leaders and institutions were worried, more than they allowed themselves to say in public, about the spread of prostitution among Jewish girls and thievery among Jewish boys. Still, in the life of the immigrant community as a whole, crime was a marginal phenomenon, a pathology discoloring the process of collective assertion and adjustment. Most of the immigrants had neither training nor understanding nor appetite for native criminal methods. Crime was a source of shame, but it was not at the center of immigrant life. What was at the center, or at least one of the main things at the center, and I won't have time to talk much about it, <coughs> in these early years, <clears throat> was a kind of raw, primitive, intellectually primitive radicalism. This radicalism of the early immigrant period had more to do with a visceral reaction against religious orthodoxy than any precise analysis of capitalist society. It had more to do with the hope of self-transformation, gropings toward bohemianism, ethical experiment, the beginnings, the faint beginnings of sexual freedom, 
than with organized working class protest. The ferocity with which this early Jewish radicalism announced its cosmopolitanism mirrored the ferocity with which traditional Judaism had clung to messianic separatism. This radicalism was still strongly tied to the world it was rejecting, still deeply responsive to the fathers it meant to outrage. And it's understandable for a boy or a girl to have turned to agnosticism or atheism or socialist disbelief in the 1870s or 80s in Eastern Europe meant a total break with a whole of family life. It meant not just the mere intellectual change or political opinion, it meant a radical transformation of life from top to bottom. It meant literally going off by oneself. <clears throat> now a good portion of the early immigrants on the East Side refused to speak Yiddish, the radical immigrants. What was Yiddish? A wretched jargon of schnorrers, a, uh, a language which they looked down upon, uh, something that they scorned. But then, of course, they found that if they wanted to get to the masses about whom they spoke, but about whom they also knew very little, there was only one avenue of approach, and that was Yiddish. And so you had the experience of many of these early radicals of the 1880s and 90s learning Yiddish, half Yiddish, broken Yiddish, about as good as, say, that of most uh, uh, comedians on TV today in order to reach the masses of the people. For a while, it was anarchism rather than socialism which held the imagination of the more radical immigrants in the 80s and 90s. The religious question <coughs> was necessarily central. And the religious question was central because it had dominated the entirety of Jewish life up till now. And anyone who broke away from the traditional ways couldn't simply declare himself, as perhaps 50 or 60 years later was possible, indifferent to religious issues, just interested in politics. His radicalism had to take, it was almost unavoidable psychologically, even if deplorable politically, it had to take the form of a violent attack upon denunciation of the belief of his fathers, the belief in which he had been trained. <clears throat> Here, for example, Alexander Berkman, the friend of Emma Goldman, recalls a conversation between himself and an older person. I do not believe in religion. Mm, young man, and when, permit me to ask, did you reach so profound a decision? Since I wrote the essay, there is no God. And when did you write the essay? Three years ago. How old were you then? Twelve. It was a kind of village atheism in the reconstituted Jewish village where faith among the masses remained strong and the mere thought of apostasy required emotional courage. The anarchists and some of the social democrats would hold balls, for example, in Yom Kippur Eve. A politically disastrous, suicidal move since it antagonized many of the workers who they wanted to organize into trade unions, but who still maintain some religious feelings. <clears throat> the Pioneers of Liberty, an anarchist uh, Yiddish-speaking organization, declared in 1889 
that they were simply intent upon celebrating in their own way, quote, the great festival of the slaughter of the fowl. But this home-brewed anthropology fooled no one. What was ringing in their ears was not the sound of primitive ritual, it was the melody of the Kol Nidre. The parodies of the traditional prayers that they printed in their papers were often very clever, but also revealed, as the religionists were quick to observe, how well they still remembered the prayers that they were parodying. <coughs> I see I have to move along a little bit. And finally, let me try to come to some kind of conclusion regarding the, what I call the first phase of the immigrant experience. I've tried to find a way to make this experience, the details of which are almost impossible to, are so dreadful, it's almost impossible to persuade people of their reality. I tried to find a way to make it vivid, to find some kind of comparison which would strike the imagination of reasonably well-educated people. I think I found it. The mass migration of the Jews from Eastern Europe to America signified not only the beginning of a major change in the physical circumstances of the Jewish people, it also brought an upheaval in their social existence that at some points was similar to the Industrial Revolution which occurred in Europe a century earlier. Masses of people being forced out of and then choosing to flee the land, a loss of traditional patterns of pre-industrial culture, the sudden crowding of pauperized or proletarianized human beings into ghastly slums, a cataclysm that leaves people broken, stunned, helpless. These elements of the Industrial Revolution were reenacted but within a much shorter time span and with much more dramatic effect in the mass migration of the Jews during the last two decades of the 19th century. In one experience, <coughs> this migration combined at least three kinds of change. First, a physical uprooting from small town life in Eastern Europe to the wastes and possibilities of urban America Second, a severe rupture from, and sometimes grave loss of, the moral values and cultural supports of the Jewish tradition. And third, a radical shift in class composition, mostly as a sudden and forced proletarianization. Any one of these would have been painful enough. Take all three together, and you have a major social trauma. Now, the shtetl had been wretched enough. We should resist all impulses to sentimentalize or romanticize it. The shtetl was not exactly like what you get in Fiddler on the Roof, where they have a charming pogrom with songs. <laughs> <clears throat> but at least, at least, the shtetl was a thoroughly familiar place where your ancestors lay buried. It didn't loom up to terrifying heights before your eyes. It required no special knowledge of machines and shops, and it seldom had much to do with the rigors of the clock. The shtetl encouraged that indifference to time, which a true religious existence demands, and a life of poverty enables. To many of the immigrants, when they first came to America, 
The noise of the streets, the bulk of the buildings, the pushing and elbowing were terrifying. Little wonder, like, like an upswell of emotion, sometimes nausea, the dominant motif in the culture of the immigrant Jews was nostalgia, the homesickness of castaways. They left behind them, these pioneering immigrants, a good portion of their culture and religion. The rabbis, the learned institutions, the political leaders, the burial societies, the intellectuals, almost all such figures remained in the old country. After 1905, it would be different, for then a portion of the Yiddish-speaking intelligentsia would come to America. But now, by the common judgment and memory of the immigrants themselves, those who came, were the dispossessed, the wanderers, the surplus populations, men without skills. <coughs> they were people who were utterly uprooted. A few found a kind of substitute faith in anarchism and socialism. A few remained with the traditional faith of religion. Most of them, it has to be said in honesty, at this point, and this of course is the point before the great flowering of the immigrant Yiddish culture, at this point, they were, as the saying goes, Menschen. So the first major Jewish working class appears in the United States a few years before, and under more extreme circumstances then, even the working class which appears in Lutz and Warsaw. Physically, socially, culturally, the immigrants were poorly equipped for proletarian life. They lacked the stamina, they lacked the casual acceptance of burdens. They lacked the roughness of manner by means of which working class communities in Europe and America have come to accept and to ease their lot. Surely that's one reason that the immigrant Jewish workers would prove to be so fiercely rebellious and so eager to escape the conditions of life against which they rebelled. But that part comes later. <laughs> now, I will be very glad to answer questions if there are any. Let us hope that you can, uh, let's try, without being too strict about it, to confine questions to this early period. I will be talking next week and the week after about some things in the later period. Uh, but. Ask whatever questions you want. Yes, ma'am. No, no, American born. No, they were Jews who had come over from Russia. You see, you have to understand something. <clears throat> the Jewish intelligentsia of the old country just the way many Americans and English intellectuals have a disease called the French flu, they had another disease that might be called the Russian flu. And it was understandable. The Russian intelligentsia in the late 19th century is tremendously impressive. It is the literary people, the, the intellectuals. They are people of great devotion, of great moral uh, stature. You have people like Chekhov and Chernyshevsky and Turgenev and Tolstoy, and for uh, young Jewish people, uh, young would-be writers, beginning to enter intellectual life, 
These figures are giants, and they're right, they are giants. Uh, many of the younger uh, uh, Jewish intellectuals try to mimic and to ape the styles of the Russian intelligentsia. They felt that Yiddish was the language of ignorance. Yiddish was the language of the statel, of benightedness, sleepiness, backwardness, reaction, uh, etc. Whereas Russian, they felt, was the language of the forthcoming revolution. They didn't quite foresee some of the consequences. And <coughs> but smarter people than they didn't either. And, uh, and so they naturally turned to Russian because the same way that American Jews have turned to English. They naturally turned to Russian because they felt that Russian was the language of world culture. And they came to America and when they wanted to make speeches uh, about uh, left-wing politics, they spoke in Russian, you see. And it was all very well, but the trouble was that the workers whom they wanted to address uh, didn't understand it. Incidentally, there's an amusing parallel to this in an earlier experience of the Jews in Eastern Europe, and that's with the Haskalah, who were not radicals, but who were enlighteners, Hebraist enlighteners, and who wanted to bring something of Western culture to the masses of East European Jews. They were very serious and worthy people. And they also looked down upon Yiddish and they found that in order to bring enlightenment to the unenlightened, they had to speak the language of the unenlightened. They had to learn Yiddish. The same thing happened here. <coughs> Well, uh, to say that something is a nonviolent crime doesn't mean that it isn't a crime. It means it's a different kind of crime. It's a Jewish crime, but it's still a crime. That's the first thing. Now, there was a lot of crime. There, these, this is not a question of opinion, this is a question of fact. There was a very great deal of crime on the East. Why shouldn't there have been crime? If you live in these circumstances, so terrible, it makes people turn to crime. There wasn't much violent crime, but there was crime, for example, a lot of uh, petty pickpocketing. There were Fagans who uh, got the gangs of Jewish kids to uh, go stealing, petty thievery, uh, things of that sort, cheating, uh, a lot of things. There was a very great deal of crime. Uh, if you associate crime only with uh, melodramatic murders, such as appear on the front page of the Daily News and perhaps other newspapers in New York, that's one thing. But if you think of crime as crime, there was a very great deal on the east side. The lady over there. Yeah. Well, you don't think that they, they gave religious checks to the girls, you know. Yes. Uh, we have a discussion on Hester Street and the course that I'm taking. I spoke about crime, which I remember from my childhood. I lived on this road when I was a girl, and I can remember some of the things that happened to me personally. And when I brought uh, this up, everyone was up in arms, so there was no Jewish crime. My mother was 96 years old. I went to see her that weekend, and I asked her about it. And she told me about experiences that she had had in those days, and she came out <coughs> 
Well, you see, there's a Yiddish proverb which goes, for example, is no proof. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, um, uh, I mean, you know, one person has a grandmother who, who knew crime, another person doesn't. But there's simple evidence. There are statistics, there are newspaper reports, there are court reports. Uh, I have a lot of this stuff in my book. There, there can't be any dispute about this. This is just a matter of fact. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was some education at this point. Uh, the kids, some of the kids would be sent to public school, a little bit to high school. The Jewish mania for college uh, does not really begin to make itself felt till about the turn of the century. Uh, in the early years of this century, considerable numbers of Jewish boys, not girls yet, start going to city college. But that statement has to be taken with some caution because the total number of students at City College was still very, very small. The proportion of Jewish kids, say, in 1902 at City College was large, or getting large, not as, not as much as it would be when I went there, but still getting large. But the total number was still very, very small. Jewish girls uh, had to struggle I'm going to talk about some of this next week. They had to struggle for the right to go to school. Uh, parents uh, were dubious about this. Uh, German Jewish girls were going to Barnard in fairly large numbers, which really is to say rather small numbers, uh, at the time of the First World War. East European Jewish girls, and uh, we checked through the the graduating uh, books of Hunter College for some 20 odd years, and it's not a scientific method, but it gives you a rough approximation. You can roughly tell which names are German Jewish, which are uh, East European Jewish, and which are not Jewish of any kind. The, so far as we could tell, impressionistically, East European Jewish girls started going to Hunter College, not Barnard, in significant numbers only after the First World War. In the 80s and 90s, uh, education couldn't be a major preoccupation. These were people, like the early pioneers, they were just literally struggling to hang on. And it for a time, it seemed as if they weren't going to succeed. The turning point comes, <coughs> I would guess, around 1902 or so, when they really pulled themselves together. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. My impression or guess, let's say a fairly educated guess, is that the culture of the East Side is duplicated in the large cities. In the Jewish neighborhoods in Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, etc., a few large cities where there are large immigrant Jewish neighborhoods, they tend to be pretty much like what I have described the East Side to be. Though later on, when you have the real flowering of Yiddish culture in America, in the theater and in literature, there is, of course, a very great deal more of it on the East Side than these other places, for the same reason that whatever culture America has tends to be concentrated in, in New York rather than the other cities. But when you come to the small towns, when you come to the South, when you come to those Jews who settle in little uh, places in the Midwest, that's a totally different story.
which is not mine. Yes. <coughs> Most of the Jews who came from Eastern Europe debarked at New York, a smaller number in Boston and Philadelphia, but most in New York. The bulk, or a large number in any case, stayed in New York. Gradually some would go extend themselves into other places and form a few central uh, uh, settlements in the large cities. There were some, I, I have left out one of the most interesting aspects of uh, this period, which uh, if you want to look at my book, you can find. There were some efforts in these years to found agricultural cooperative communities, the Am Olam movement. <coughs> Excuse me. The Am Olam movement was a very idealistic and, and, and touching uh, phenomenon, small in number, a few hundred people, and they tried to set up agricultural communes, I guess we would call them, in various places. They chose the most God-forsaken places, literally God-forsaken places, Arkansas, Oregon, South Dakota. All of these projects failed, failed dismally for many reasons. They didn't have enough capital. Above all, they lacked the experience that is required to run a farm efficiently they lacked the physical endurance. They weren't strong enough in many cases. Uh, they didn't know anything about American conditions. It was really, in the sadder sense of the word, a utopian project. They came back, most of them, to the big cities and then became absorbed often in a variety of uh, Jewish political movements. Yes? I'm reminded of the divorce that's No. Okay, I guess that's There was very little divorce among the Jews. This was the luxury which uh, hadn't yet. It was. It was a modern. Uh, it was a new development which hadn't yet reached them. That would be for the children. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. <laughs> That's a very, you all hear that? It's a very interesting question. The relation of the German Jews and the East European Jews. The German Jews had come here mostly in the middle of the 19th century, 1840s and 50s. They were, in one sense, on a higher cultural level than the East European Jews, by some standards, not by others. That is to say, they were much more experienced in the ways of Western civilization, in living in cities, uh, dealing with abstractions, handling money, uh, reading and writing, etc. For them, Judaism was a religion essentially. It was not a total way of life as Jewishness was for the East European Jews. They adapted well, quickly, and successfully to American life. Uh, they settled in places like St. Louis, Cincinnati, and a smallish number in New York City. By the time the East European Jews came over, the German Jews in New York City were rather prosperous, at least a significant number of them were, led by figures like Jacob Schiff, uh, Oscar Strauss, and a little bit later, Louis Marshall, men of some stature and character. 
<clears throat> they uh, were mostly in garment manufacturing, though by about 1923, they were driven out by the East European Jews who undercut them and undersold them. And they were also in real estate and certain other things. The German Jews looked down upon the East European Jews. But the traditional accounts of this relationship uh, I've discovered in, in working on this material, the traditional accounts of this relationship tend to be one-sided. The traditional accounts tend to say the German Jews looked down upon the East European Jews, condescended toward them, were nasty toward them, etc. All of that is true. But there's one important thing that needs to be added, and that is they held their noses, but they did their duty. That is to say, they looked down upon the East European Jews, they printed uh, things in their papers and the Education Alliance reports about the need for better hygiene, more washing, bathing, and they were probably right. Uh, they infuriated the East European Jews, who felt that in some ways they had, that is the East Europeans, a superior culture, a more intense communal life, etc. But they came through, the German Jews by and large came through. They came through with financial help, they came through with institutional help. For example, <clears throat> the Educational Alliance, which was a major institution on the East Side, was founded by German Jews with German Jewish money. Many other such institutions also. Came, when the Kishinev program broke out in 19, was it two or three? Uh, which? Three. Three, okay. When the Kishinev program broke out in 1903, the Jews in America were very stirred and they wanted to engage in protests and demonstrations and they did. But when they wanted to reach the American government officials to try to get the government to uh, put pressure on the Russians, the East European Jews had absolutely no experience in this. They didn't know how to handle it. Either they were socialists and in principle opposed to such things, or they were religionists and totally unfamiliar with it. <clears throat> they had to turn to the East Europe, to, excuse me, to the German Jews, who had already learned the arts of uh, pressure uh, and things of that sort through the American Jewish Committee, which Louis Marshall formed. And so there would be a relationship of partial cooperation, frequent irritation. Why is my book called World of Our Fathers and Not World of Our Fathers and Mothers? Because I also have an ear, and my ear tells me that World of Our Fathers is a uh, euphonious and uh, condensed title, and World of Our Fathers and Mothers is a speech, not a title. <laughs> <coughs> and also because I think one has to be faithful to the historical reality, because essentially it was a world of fathers. You may think that was unfortunate. You may think that should be changed. Incidentally, in my book, there's a very great deal of material about Jewish women, about Jewish mothers. What do you mean it was the world of fathers? It was the world in which essentially men made uh, uh, crucial decisions. It was a world in which men were the dominant uh, uh, directors, moral path givers, leaders, etc. Now, you may feel that it shouldn't have been that way, but it was, you see. And I'm writing a work of history, not of apologetics. So I have to say it as I, th as, as, as I think it was. 
Now, uh, you have a right to change history in the future, but you don't have a right to rewrite it in the past. All right. Okay. Yes, sir. in the 80s and 90s. Zivilnish is nisht. In the 80s and 90s, you see, America was a very strange place. There were no real reports as to what was going on here. There was a great sense of fear of coming into an unfamiliar world And there was the fear among the religiously oriented Jews, which I think was a legitimate fear, that to come here would mean the loss of religion. You know, there was was a lot of truth to that. And so the, the more orthodox felt that it was the burden of Jews to accept material and physical suffering under the czar and not to risk the breakup and dispersion and the loss of what was, after all, a strongly unified religious community. That was one thing among the more religious ones. Among the radical ones, (coughs) the socialists, some of these phrases barely mean anything in the 80s and 90s, socialists, I think, radicals. Among the radical ones at this period, you see, There was the idea, it is our job to stay here with the Jewish workers who are first beginning to form a unified class, who are first beginning to work in the factories, to set up factories, craftsmen, etc. There's a lot going on here, was their feeling. We shouldn't run away from it. So you had a concurrence, you see, of both kinds of interest and feeling. <clears throat> also something else. This is the period when there is an enormous upsurge of Yiddish cultural activity. The beginning of the Renaissance of Yiddish occurs around this time. So that uh, for many of these people, suppose you're a young Yiddish writer. Uh, you've just come to Warsaw and you visited Peretz. That's like, uh, for him, that's like visiting T.S. Eliot, if not, if not higher. Um, and uh, the idea of going to America, there's no parrots in America, whom will he find there? Uh, it has no power, no attraction. After 1905, it's different. Many of the uh, Jewish leftists, radicals, had been involved in the failed revolution of 1905. Consequently, they've got to get out. It's either Siberia or escape. Many of the Yiddish writers are themselves half-touched a little bit by this kind of radicalism. There's a very deep turn to reaction in, the, in Russian society after 1905, which obviously bodes no good for the Jews, you see. And also there is among the Jews in Eastern Europe, at this point after 1905, a greater militancy a greater self-confidence, a greater self-assurance, you see. And so they've lost here, they go there. (coughs) Sir.
Yeah, that's correct. And there was need. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's quite right. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman here. I'm going to give people... I'll, I won't go back to those who have asked the question until everyone who hasn't had a chance has had one. That is, if I can hold out. Yeah, go ahead. Literate. It's a very tricky... Yeah. Able to read and write, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> put it this way. They had a smattering of a lot. They had a smattering of Hebrew enough to most uh, immigrants who came had a smattering of Hebrew enough to say their prayers. They obviously could speak Yiddish. They were able to read some Yiddish. That doesn't mean that they were able to sit down or were very much inclined to read Shalom Aleichem a few years later. But yes, they could read a newspaper. Among the women, there was a higher degree of illiteracy. Though even among Jewish women at this point, there was likely to be a certain minimum literacy, enough to read prayers translated into Yiddish, uh, little books of homilies and things of that sort. I would say that of total, of total illiteracy, there was rather little. This is an impression. We don't really have statistics. Of total illiteracy, there was rather little. But the level of literacy was low. <coughs> yes? Well, the second question I'm going to talk about two weeks from today, so I'll leave that alone. On the first, <coughs> it's an enormous problem. It's an enormous question. My general inclination in, in writing my book and in thinking about these matters has been to avoid comparisons of this sort. One kind of comparison is obviously in bad taste and in dubious of dubious moral value. That is, to tell other disadvantaged groups, look how we did it, we suffered, we came through, you can too, buck up. Um, with the Italians, for example, and the Slavs who came in large numbers in the late 80s, um, there are some similarities. But you must remember that the major divergences, so far as I can see, begin to occur. The roots of the divergences are there in the 80s and 90s, but the major differences begin to occur about the turn of the century. I, I'm, uh, you know, dating it with perhaps forced precision. In actuality, things don't work out that clearly, but it's around those dates. And uh, <clears throat> it's a very simple matter. Who, which Italians came? The surplus population, the landless peasants, the poor of the city, the people who were displaced, who had no place. An Italian professor of art history in Florence, or a professor of uh, whatever in Bologna, he didn't come to America. He had no reason to come to America. What would he do here? What, what use would he be? The Jews, of course, had no professors to speak of in Eastern Europe. They weren't allowed into the universities. Their intellectuals were very close to the people, very close to the folk. 
in terms of occupation, often indistinguishable from ordinary people. <coughs> so even in the 80s and 90s, you begin to get the beginnings, a smattering of a really rather primitive intelligentsia among the East European Jews. In the sense of extreme suffering and high exploitation, in the 80s and 90s, the Jews are fairly similar, I would think. It's just an impression to the Slavs and the Italians. And in fact, many of the Italians, when they come here, Italian women work in the garment industries also, doing the same kind of work, uh, often cheaper than Jews. They take over the lowest jobs. But then differences begin to occur between the Jewish community and the others. Yes. <clears throat> well, the synagogue is the basic institution of uh, Jewish life, and it remains such, but it is incapable, really, of coping with some of the more extreme, disruptive phenomena of American life. Uh, there's always a danger of ignoring it because it is, so to say, a constant factor. It is always there, and great many synagogues are formed, ranging from fairly imposing structures to storefronts, but it no longer has the authority, the control, the prestige that it had in the old country. It now has to fight for the minds of the Jews with all kinds of competing groups. Uh, the lady in the back. <laughs> to some extent, yes, to some extent. Yeah. Yes. I will be honest with you and say that for these years, I don't know. And what's more, I rather doubt that we have statistics on it. But I don't know. Uh, yes, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'd love to keep going, but I'm beginning to fade. So um, let's make it uh, three more questions with short answers. mean Galiziana. <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> in terms of the uh, socioeconomic life of the immigrant community, they largely uh, work in with the East European Jews. Yep. Was there a high incidence of mental illness? among the early immigrants? Very likely, yes. Very likely, yes. But since they weren't social workers uh, and, uh, and the psychiatrists to observe it, we really, uh, you know, the same question could be asked, was there a high incidence of mental illness among Americans uh, in general at this time? And so far as I know, the evidence is very spotty. Um, there, there are signs of, uh, of pathology, yes. Uh, there is, uh, for example, among girls, shop girls, just to show you that I'm not really a sexist, uh, all this is in my book, 
despite the title, uh, among shop girls at the turn of the century, there was a very great deal of depression, especially those who lived by themselves. And there was a fair wave of suicide. Now, how do we know this? Uh, not statistics. We know it by uh, scanning the Yiddish press. And if you look through this period in the forward, you see there are a lot of uh, headlines. Gnam and the gas, took the gas. Then you read it, uh, Sophie Brownstein, uh, 23 years old, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there, there are such reports. I think it's fair to assume that uh, under extreme circumstances, people tend to react pretty much like other people. When life is relatively easy, you can indulge in, in marginal differentiations. Under extreme suffering, people tend probably to react in fairly similar ways. Given that likelihood, <coughs> and uh, in a situation of very extreme difficulty, there must have been uh, a great deal of uh, neurosis and psychosis and all kinds of other things for which they didn't have yet the names, but nevertheless, the phenomena were there. Uh, the gentleman in the back. No, they did something even more important than that. Interesting, they formed Landsmannschaften. Uh, Landsmannschaft is a society based upon a geographical unit, a town or a village in the old country. <coughs> the very early Landsmannschaften had a religious character very often. It would be a group of people from the same area who came together for the purposes of prayer. After a while, in the, into the 1890s and 1900s, the Landsmannschaften took on a more secular character. That is to say, the religious, uh, the Ansche went off on their own, and the Landsmannschaft became a fraternal society with primitive uh, anticipations of welfare measures, things like that. Okay, one more. Yes, the job. Landmarks? Yeah, there's an occasional. Now, in New York City, everything gets torn down. You know, it, uh, there are not really, not really many landmarks that, that I know. Now, I, I have the sense that by now, you know, landmark, you can find some old tenements. But, uh, um, for example, the theaters, most of the major Yiddish theaters are not there anymore, or things like that. Okay, I'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this 92Y program. For more information, visit 92Y.org. This program is copyright 1976 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.